Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. <laughs> Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Well, that was quite a weekend, wasn't it? One of the most unbelievable interviews of all time, watching a man desperately trying to convince us all of something even he knows he doesn't really believe and continually refusing to say what people are expecting him to say. But that's enough about the Andrew Marl Show. Boris Johnson must have been thanking his lucky stars. Uh, Prince Andrew uh, decided to give that big interview to Emily Maitlis of the BBC on Saturday night. After all, it certainly put pay to any chance that his old mate Jennifer Arcuri was going to gain any traction with her latest claims of being cast aside. Today, as the leaders of the three main parties prepare to make business this week's battleground with speeches at the CBI, the Queen's second son is still dominating the front pages this morning. We will be speaking uh, to the Daily Mail's editor-at-large and royal writer uh, Richard Kay about just how damaging this has been for the monarchy and what happens next. 0344 499 1000. It was quite unbelievable, quite incredible, quite remarkable. Uh, the number of superlatives that you can throw at this uh, would never be enough, quite frankly. We want to hear from you as well. 0344 499 1000. Because my suspicion uh, is that when people are asking the question, what happens next? I don't really think it's up to Prince Andrew. I don't really think it's up to the Queen. I don't think it's up to the royal family at all. I think it's very much up to what happens with the lawyers and people like Gloria Allred in America. America, uh, who now wants to question Prince Andrew under oath. Coming up later on, we'll take a look at the state of the parties as we count down to next month's election, and we'll bring you news of the first TV debates tomorrow night on ITV. And we'll get the latest from Hong Kong, where police officers have been given the green light to use lethal force against increasingly violent demonstrators. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, the number of headlines this morning, which would have most people gasp uh, on any other day, uh, are incredible. Apologise to Epstein's victims now, Prince told is the Guardian. It was a great success, Mum, uh, says Andrew to the Queen in The Sun. Uh, it's uh, Andrew, my regret over TV interview on the front of the Daily Mail. Defiant Duke stands by car crash TV interview. Certainly was a car crash TV interview. And as I said to Julie Hartley Brewer, there were so many things that just didn't seem right at all. There's absolutely no question, I think, in anybody's mind that he should not have done this particular interview. And obviously, uh, not only that, but his PR man, who had been hired specifically to try and smooth over the uh, image of Prince Andrew, um, has quit because he recommended that he shouldn't do the TV interview at all. Richard Kay uh, is a, a man who's covered the royal family for a very, very long time, uh, all the way back almost to uh, when Prince Andrew uh, was the age of Prince William, I suppose. Richard Kay, of course, is from the Daily Mail, a royal writer. Richard, a very good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Morning. Now, an incredible um, sort of array of stories this morning in all the papers. I mean, you guys have done about the first 11 or uh, 13, uh, first 11 pages on it. I mean, this is, this is absolutely kind of going back to the days of Princess Diana when this was how in interested people were in the royal family. Well, absolutely true. And, of course, the interview was very reminiscent of those car crash interviews that both Charles and Diana gave in the 1990s. We haven't seen the royals in front of the cameras quite like this ever since. For no. very good reason, I suspect. Well, exactly. And, I mean, it's quite extraordinary watching it, as I'm, as I'm sure everybody, whenever, whenever you watched it, whether it was on iPlayer, whether it was actually on live on the night, on, on Saturday night at BBC Two, it was quite, I mean, I, I've been saying this morning, actually, watching Emily Maitlis, I was amazed at how composed she was. And some of his answers were so ridiculous that you might have been tempted to burst out laughing. 
it was utterly ridiculous. And yet she did every, she gave him every opportunity to say something, anything that might offer some kind of explanation, at least a, a touch of remorse, a word of apology for the victims of uh, Epstein's heinous crimes. And the fact that Andrew himself is the father of two adult daughters, you'd have thought that would have had something running around in the back of his head. Oh, yeah, I've got to say that about the girls, but nothing. Not a word. That was incredible as well, to, to, to even acknowledge the fact that he invited uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, who appears to hold the key to an awful lot of this stuff, to a party. You know, he's her boyfriend, so almost the fact that her boyfriend is a convicted paedophile matters not a jot. It seems not. I mean, it, it, once again, with Andrew, judgment seems to have flown out of the window. I mean, that's been the story of his royal life, um, quite apart from his inability to find a proper role for himself. And, and I think uh, this whole sense of entitlement that Andrew wears about him all the time, he's the monarch's second son, you know, for a very long time, he was the heir in line to Prince Charles. But of course, as children, William and, and, and Harry have started having families, Andrew's influence on the monarchy has been diminished, but his attitudes have remained much the same as they were. It's all about me. It really is extraordinary that people can still think the way that he thinks because there's lots of different uh, reports this morning. Richard, I wonder whether you could point us in the right direction as to whether the Queen knew about it. There's a story going around at the moment that says that she did not apparently approve Andrew's interview, even though that was certainly the impression that was being given a few hours ago. No, I, I'm, I'm absolutely assured that the Queen was informed of what he was going to do. I mean, Andrew and, and the Queen have a unique relationship. He's, he's her favourite if you like. Yeah. And it's, it's been like that, you know, ever since he was born. Um, she always indulges him. And they have a, this special relationship. And he would have uh, run it by her. And whether she knew precisely what the form the interview was going to take, I have no idea. But then if anyone had known what the form the interview was going to take, they would have advised him against it. Well, exactly right. And this new PR guy who came in who was trying to convince him not to do it and who has since quit uh, after he agreed to do it, um, clearly, again, we have a situation where the royals are not taking the advice of the professionals. That's absolutely true. If you're going to turn to a professional, professional media consultant, he said, no, don't do this. I think you've got to listen to him. I think there were siren voices around him uh, in his private office, within his family too, who, who felt that Andrew, he's such a decent bloke, he just needs to get his message out. When people hear him, hear how authentic he is, um, they'll realise he's been telling the truth all along. And is it right uh, that now, as I'm saying, that this is kind of out of Prince Andrew's hands now? Because a lot of people asking the question this morning, lots of commentators saying, you know, what will the Queen do now? What will Prince Andrew do next? He says he's going to just carry on as usual. I think it's now going to be determined by those people in America who may wish to subpoena him or somehow get him to, sat, to sit in a room with, with some FBI agents and answer some proper questions. Well, I think that's certainly one major obstacle he's got to cross. I also think he's very much in the court of public opinion. This idea that he can just sit back and carry on with his charitable work and his official duties seems for the birds to me. Um, I think Andrew could face calls uh, increasingly to sort of take a more of a back seat when it comes to royal duty. Um, he's a, a major distraction for the family. Um, what could they do? Could they downgrade him? Could they cut off his public funding? All those things are quite possible. Um, but then he, he'd sort of be an aimless prince with, with even less on his plate. Um, so there has to be some degree of control, I suspect, over him. Yeah, possibly so. I must admit, I, even I, and I'm not particularly anti-royalist, but watching Emily Maitlis and Prince Andrew walking down this very lavish corridor 
pre-prior to the actual interview taking place inside Buckingham Palace, and I know that's not where he lives, but it made you feel sort of slightly like, what gives him the right to walk around there as if he owns the place? The optics were all wrong, Mike, weren't yeah. they? Why didn't he do it in his own home? Yeah. Or in a, or in a TV studio, unforgiving studio lights. We, you know, we would have found out then whether he sweats or not. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I thought that was a bad mistake right from the, the uh, get-go, yeah. that he shouldn't have done it at Buckingham Palace. There was a sense of, well, look, I'm, I'm a prince. I live in this marvellous uh, surroundings. Um, you know, I, I'm obviously uh, I'm telling the truth. And interesting reading Emily Maitlis's piece in The Times today where she talks about the length of time that they've been trying to get this interview and how at the beginning the conversation was all about should he talk about his trade uh, deals, his work that he does on behalf of the Foreign Office, uh, you know, his charitable works and all of that. And then it suddenly became, well, Epstein's now dead, let's talk about that. What do you think changed his mind in order to, to, to suddenly come out from behind a veil, if you like? Well, I think quite simply the story wasn't going away. He wasn't making any cut through. He authorised these official leaks. Aides and friends have been talking to the media about casting doubts on the uh, veracity of the, of the so-called photograph of him with his arm around the waist of Virginia Roberts uh, and other things. And he realised it just wasn't cutting through. People were not believing him. So I think he felt we, he had to take the ball by the horns. And you make an interesting point. Um, it's always good to get insight into the way the royal family works and how the uh, sort of royal protection squad works. You talk about something called Purple 4-1, which was his Scotland Yard call sign. His story about going to this Woking Pizza Express, there will be a record of that somewhere. I mean, surely oh. he wouldn't be stupid enough to say he'd done something that he didn't do. Most certainly there'll be a record somewhere. And that's one of the things which struck me, that he, at no stage did he offer any supporting evidence. Mm. In all these places, whether it was in Tramp Nightclub or in the Pizza Express joint or even in Epstein's house, Epstein's house, his personal protection officer, his Scotland Yard bodyguard, would have been there with him. And he could have said, well, my, my policeman, my detective can confirm all that. They've got all the details. And he never used that as a backup, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely right. And also, as, as much as Emily Maitlis did brilliantly to get the interview and, and her questions were, were, were very sort of probing and, and very good, there were things, as you point out in your piece today, that she could have taken further, uh, such as the massages and, and the kinds of things that he would have been aware of, staying at Jeffrey Epstein's various different uh, locations. You would have thought so, but no criticism to Emily Maitlis. I mean, she was uh, she completely skewered him anyway yeah. with with the questions she did have. I mean, he couldn't really put up a cogent argument. I mean, it was it's all the lack of humanity, lack of humility in his answers, which I think struck many many viewers. And he also gave the game away a little bit as to his attitude, didn't he? When he talked about how, you know, well, of course, in the old days, it was just the printed press. And now it's a much bigger kind of a beast that you have to fight. I mean, I remember going to um, Canada back in the days before he married Fergie with Andrew Morton, who was then royal correspondent of the News of the World, because we found some woman who was a girlfriend of his who had had quite a long-running affair with him, who gave us a full interview, who did the whole thing. I mean, he's always been associated with party time, and he's always been associated with women, which doesn't make him a bad guy, but why does he pretend that that never happened? That's a very good question. I mean, I, I think Andrew's a bit of a paradox. I mean, he was saddled with the, uh, the Randy Andy uh, nickname from a very early age. Um, he then made a, a rather unsuccessful marriage. And I think what happened after the breakup of his marriage, then coming out of the Navy and not really finding any fulfilling public role, have all filtered through to give this impression of a man who's slightly on the edge, slightly uncertain of where he fits in into the royal family. 
And does this perhaps give an answer to the question why uh, are Meghan and Harry not going to spend Christmas with the Queen? I mean, is it possible, for example, that Meghan feels so strongly that she can't be in the same room as this guy that therefore, you know, she can't go? Well, that's an interesting thought. I hadn't, that, that hadn't occurred to me. I mean, we know where, where she stands on, on the Me Too movement. She's very upfront and central on that. Um, I really don't think she would uh, dare to, I, to take a position on her husband's uncle, though. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I just imagine if they were sitting there watching it, that she, being from where she is and from the, the, the political perspective that she has, would be horrified, wouldn't she? Well, I, I should think she would be horrified. I mean, I think 99% of the population of this country and, and viewers around the world must have been horrified by what they saw. It was not a convincing performance. It really wasn't. And, and, and as many papers have said this morning, and as you have said, this is not going to make it go away either. This is going to actually kind of turbocharge it because people are now, I presume, crawling all over Woking, even as we speak, looking for the people who were at that same party, uh, whose kids went to school with, with the Duke of York's kids. Presumably everyone's now looking for more pictures uh, from the Epstein years, more pictures of Prince Andrew at parties. It's just going to get worse. I think it is. And, and the word from New York um, has been that in the new year, a whole new raft of depositions are going to be dumped into the public domain. We don't know what they're going to contain. And, and nor does Prince Andrew. Um, but more girls have come out of the woodwork. What are they going to say about the parties? Was the Duke at any of these parties um, that we don't know about? Right. And had he not given this interview, I mean, you make the point yourself that some of the allegations were beginning, although they were still not going away, they weren't getting any worse, if you know what I mean. They weren't getting any worse. Uh, Virginia Roberts um, was repeated, repeating the same mantra and people were going, oh, it's her again saying the same old thing. She hasn't got anything new to say. It's the same old story. And I think that too should have um, played into their thought, their thinking into, as to whether they gave the interview or not. Yeah, that's extraordinary, isn't it? So, I mean, as far as the kind of immediate situation runs, I mean, does Prince Andrew just keep his head down now? What, what happens? I think Andrew does keep his head down now. I mean, what, what I think he is going to have a problem with is he, he's got a very successful um, arm to his work, his, his, his charity called Pitch at the Palace, where he brings sort of high-tech entrepreneurs and money men together. It's a bit like the Dragon's Den. Mm. Um, but it does rest on some fairly major investors and backers, you know, blue, tech, uh, blue chip companies putting money in. And you just begin to wonder, are they going to start thinking twice about supporting this man? What are their shareholders going to say, more to the point, mm. about them investing in, in an Andrew project? Because the biggest fear and the biggest problem he's going to have is if he has done something illegal. Um, because at the moment, he's not being accused of doing anything illegal, is he? No, he's not being accused of doing anything illegal at all. And um, he, he flatly denies having sex with Virginia Roberts. And the, the, the crucial point here is um, she was a 17-year-old girl. At the time, it was claimed that they, they had sex. Um, it's not illegal in this country anyway. He was single. She was single. Nevertheless, he, he obviously has flatly denied it. And, you know, he, he, he made a, a stumbling effort uh, on, on the interview to say that he wasn't aware of any of the bad practices, the crimes and misdemeanours, if you like, that Epstein was up to. Which is pretty hard to believe, really, isn't it? Well, it's stretching credibility. I mean, was he convincing? I think that's a, a sort of a, uh, a view that lots of people will have on their own. I don't think it needs me to say what I think. I mean, I think a lot of people will, will think 
that didn't come across well. No, it really didn't. And I presume now that he is able to sweat again, um, you know, we'll be looking for any pictures that you can see of Prince Andrew <laughs> going out and about wherever he goes. So he's probably going to be a prisoner of his own home now for the next 10 years, isn't it? Uh, yeah, rather, I would have thought so. And I'm not sure when he can next go to the United States either. Yes. He won't want to be. He won't want to be picked up by the FBI for questioning, will he? Yeah, or indeed any of the paparazzis will be hanging around waiting for him to land on a plane. It'd be extraordinary, fascinating stuff. Richard, thank you very much indeed. Richard Kay, royal writer for the Daily Mail, eleven pages in the Daily Mail this morning. Now, many people are saying, "Well, I didn't watch the interview." All politicians are apparently saying, I didn't watch the interview. Every politician we get on, from this point on, I can promise you this, I will ask them, what should we do about Prince Andrew? Because I think politicians should have a view. You will all have a view, and I'd like to hear it. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Is it now time to just cut Prince Andrew loose? Because otherwise, this is a guy who will change matters for the worst in terms of the monarchy. Lots of people have said, and I've been one of them in previous years, that once the Queen passes on... Is there really any point in giving the monarchy to Prince Charles? Is there any point in Prince Andrew? Why are we paying these people? When you see him walking through the corridors at Buckingham Palace, surrounded by gilt and gold and red carpets and all sorts of flunkies, really? Is that the life that he should be getting, that we pay for? I don't think so. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We've just heard from Jeremy Corbyn talking about how he is not anti-business. It's nonsense to suggest that. Uh, how he would set up with the Chancellor, uh, if he was the Prime Minister, uh, some kind of a board of directors to kind of run uh, all of the nationalised industries that would be the result of a Labour government. However, as I mentioned to George Pascoe Watson a bit earlier, uh, some of the stuff that they are suggesting that they would do uh, is not likely to happen for quite some time. For example, the free broadband that was being offered is not going to kick in at certainly in the first Labour government, uh, if they were to win. Boris Johnson was up earlier talking about how uh, they are going to create some kind of fund, an investment fund, where they could put as much as another £6 billion into the NHS uh, by basically postponing a load of raises, rises in corporate uh, tax. Lots more uh, to be put out there on the business t- table as well, because one of the other things Jeremy Corbyn's calling for is 320,000 more uh, apprentices. But let's talk to Joe Twyman, uh, who is, of course, founder of Delta Poll, a man knows a thing or two about polling. More polls over the weekend showed an even bigger gulf now being created between the Tories and the Labour Party. Joe, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. So, um, does the giveaway that we are seeing from largely um, the, the, the Labour Party, but not just from the Labour Party, everybody's sort of promising to give us stuff for nothing. Um, and towards the end of the last week, it was beginning to look a bit ridiculous. I was saying, you know, maybe by the time the election comes around, everything will basically be free. Um, it doesn't seem to be having an effect on the electorate, does it? Well, the days of uh, the days of austerity are certainly uh, certainly over, and that's clear from the kind of messages that we're hearing from both main uh, both main mm. parties. But whereas last week you had a policy such as free broadband for all, which does prove popular with the majority of the electorate. It's not about specific policies. In fact, in a lot of cases, it's not even about an external number of uh, number of policies. In, instead, it's about how these all combine along with what we think of the leaders, what we think of the other people in the parties, to create these stories, the narratives that we think about each one. And it's those that we so often judge 
in making the decision about who we're going to vote for. Who do we think can be best for this country? Who do we think can, tr- can we trust? Who do we think can be people are good for people like me? That sort of thing. Yes, exactly. And I mean, as far as the dial shifting in terms of um, the beginning of the, you know, when the starting pistol was fired effectively, I guess almost two weeks ago now, and the next three weeks, I mean, what kinds of things make a difference as we get closer and closer to the actual voting day? Uh, well, in the past, in most campaigns, actually very little has made a difference. There have been fluctuations along the way, but in terms of the overall result, it hasn't changed very much. Mm. Last time around was different. The launch of the Labour manifesto was very positive for uh, for them, not just because of the policies, some of which resonated well, but simply because of the momentum they were able to gain from that event. The fact that they had the public's attention for a period of time. If you contrast that with Theresa May's manifesto launch and the and the backtracking on social care and the various nothing has changed pronouncements that came after that that was damaging for them and it was really after that that the uh, that the decline set in in uh, in the conservative fortunes and then of course we have the debates the first of which is tonight now these have the potential to make a difference even though i expect particularly in this particular instance they probably won't make much difference but they're certainly there setting the tone for the campaign setting the rhythm of the coverage and as i say with the potential to have a uh, to have a difference if someone can land a knockout punch or alternatively if someone else makes an enormous gap now i was reading an interesting piece which i think you retweeted about the people who will be in the key battlegrounds here in the in the in the coming days uh, and weeks which is the tory remainers rather than labor leavers uh, who are the real key to this election it was a piece in the guard yeah, a lot of attention has been paid to Labour leavers, Workington Man, and other massive oversimplifications. But when you look at when you look at the key constituencies that Boris Johnson needs to hold on to, a lot of them are Remain leaning conservative seats. Now, just because they remain leaning doesn't mean the majority of conservatives in those seats will have voted Remain. In fact, quite the opposite. But in a lot of cases, there are enough Remain voting conservatives in those constituencies to hold the balance of power. Now, Boris Johnson has very clearly set out his stall to this group by making the general election a very simple choice. Mm. Will they stand by the Conservatives, regardless of their position on Brexit, if you like, hold their nose, either bitterly or perhaps reluctantly, in order to prevent a Jeremy Corbyn government, or will they allow their Brexit identity to trump the uh, to trump their party identity and in a lot of constituencies particularly in london particularly in scotland in uh, in metropolitan towns and, and university cities that could make a, that could make a difference and what about the kind of uh, idea that brexit is still the main uh, kind of force in this election is that still holding firm or are people talking about other things well, it's certainly the it's certainly the main consideration when you give people a full list of uh, when you give people a full list of options to uh, uh, to move forward on, and you ask what's the most important facing the country. But when you ask what's the most important facing you and your family, health has remained at the top of this list. But it won't be one thing or the other. It'll be a combination of these things, and it may come down to a Brexit choice versus all the other domestic choices that, for instance, Labour is putting forward. If you're a Remain Conservative, for instance. Mm. And that decision could get very complicated. Well, it could. And we're going to hear later on today the result of a High Court action brought by Joe Swinson about the TV debates. They were quite sort of significant in some ways when Clegg uh, did very well out of them, but not perhaps so much last time around. What do you think uh, is, the, is going to be the plus for her if she gets into a TV debate with Corbyn and, and Johnson? 
Well, it, it, she, it, the Lib Dem leader, all, who, regardless of who it is, always wants to be involved with the two main parties, so as to position themselves in the way that Nick Clegg, uh, Nick Clegg did, if you like, as the voice of reason, the moderate, the option for change, positioning themselves in sometimes quite literally yeah. in the middle between the uh, between the two, and treated equally. I think that's unlikely to happen. I don't think the High Court will make much uh, make much difference. But simply making that noise is something useful for Joe Swinson and the Liberal Democrats, and will help her uh, with her base. She'd obviously prefer to be in the debate, but if she's not, simply complaining about it will help. Yes, indeed. So she's a kind of a win-win situation for her. I mean, as I often used to say when. Um there was arguments between the SNP about how much powers they could get from Westminster during Alex Salmon's time. It was better often when they were told they couldn't have particular powers because he could moan about it some more. Yes, that's right. Uh, but it's worth pointing out that actually nowadays, well, certainly in recent, uh, recent elections, debates have always been a bit of a damp squib, regardless of the particular configuration, regardless of whether Lib Dems and other parties were in there or not. You really do have to go back to the first debate in 2010 to see the impact that Clegmania, as it was called mm. at the time, had, even though it didn't then affect the overall result. But what I think we've seen since that very first debate in 2010 is firstly, quote-unquote, normal people are less interested in the whole process, and so they're much less likely to watch the debate. But also, and this is crucially important, people no longer view and respond to them in the way they did in that first case. People mm. were willing to sort of give Nick Clegg the benefit of the doubt, and even if they were Conservatives or Labour, they'd say, oh yes, Nick Clegg did very well then. Whereas now, you get a lot of people responding simply in partisan terms, and they're watching it, but they're watching it through a very, very strict lens. And, and, and it's also, simply a case that whoever they vote for wins. Yeah, the trouble is as well with any TV debate, and I mean, I suppose you could say radio has the same problem. If it's time-constricted, which TV tends to be more uh, than radio, you know, there's never enough time for the questions to be answered properly or for the, the, the answers to be rebutted properly. You know, it's always a very rushed affair. It never quite gets there. You never really learn much. Yeah, it's, it's messy, it's imperfect, and increasingly it's designed simply to get you your 30-second uh, uh, soundbite that can then be replayed on the clips on the news and increasingly importantly on social media by the uh, by your uh, by your advocates and your supporters and so they're not for the people watching at home they're people they're intended for the knock-on effects in the following days and weeks mm. uh, and so really it's it's not the debate itself it's how the debate is viewed and how the debate then plays out in the subsequent days that's the important bit no of course and finally um, Joe, what about the Brexit Party's influence at the moment? Because there are some who think it's kind of on the wane since the, uh, the, the stepping down, if you like, of, of, the, of the hundreds of MPs that we're going to, uh, or potential MPs that we're going to stand in all the seats which they're now not standing in. And also since the kind of uh, row has broken out between uh, the Brexit Party and the Tory Party about so called uh, bribes being offered. I think the idea that the Brexit Party were going to win a large number of seats was always uh, very, very wishful thinking. I mm. think if they'd won one, they'd be very happy. If they'd won five, they would have been absolutely astonished. Uh, and what we're seeing now is uh, what I would say a realisation of the of this limits of their ambitions. And in a lot of cases, I think uh, I think the candidates will struggle. But in a small number of cases, 
their their votes could still hold the balance of uh, power in specific instances and that could be important if the election turns out to be close yeah well i think it probably will be joe unless we've all got it massively wrong um which i would admit to uh, not actually getting wrong much in the past but uh, and joe of course famously who did predict the last election and uh, pretty much correctly uh, amongst uh, very very few pollsters but we'll keep on uh, talking to joe of course because he is the voice of reason as many of you are out there uh, in the land of the independent republican mike it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, I don't know whether you saw the sort of uh, video footage of this particular fire. It was a place called The Cube, right? Apparently the residents were all students. Many of them said that they didn't even know that they were supposed to be evacuating the building actually during the period of time uh, that they were told there was a fire because at the end of the day, actually... um, they were so many fire drills that they thought, well, the problem here is maybe it's another false alarm. And so they were slow in getting out. Many of them have lost everything. Many of them uh, will never be able to return to that particular building. And unfortunately for them, there doesn't appear to have been any warning at all. 0344-499-1000. Let's talk to Arnold Tarling, uh, who is, of course, Chartered Surveyor and member of the Association of Specialist Fire Protection. Arnold, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Um, good morning, uh, afternoon. Thanks Mike. very much. I mean, it's always terrifying when you see a blade like that because watching it over the course of the weekend um, the whole building appeared to be a light and you well, I was watching it sort of fearful that there must be loads of people inside that haven't been able to get out thankfully they were able to get out but it doesn't um, bode well does it for the, the sort of construction business which is supposed to have been addressing this problem <laughs> Um, well, one, one would have hoped that it's being addressed, but the current um, rehash of the approved document B, which is the guidance to building regulations, has only really tried sorting things out for buildings above 18 metres. Now, right. actually, this one is above 18 metres because it's seven storeys, and therefore it shouldn't have been built in the way it's been built. 
it shouldn't have been built this way, less than that, but they can get away with it mm. according to the guidance. So what about this idea that after Grenfell, we were supposed to have been looking at buildings that had cladding on them which could make a fire accelerate in some way, and we were supposed to be removing cladding from buildings which was like the Grenfell-style cladding. Has that been done? Uh, very little of it's been done. Mm. It's only being looked at of buildings over 18 metres, which this one falls into, but um, it's not been done properly. Now, with the uh, marvels of Google Street View, I was able to have a look at the construction of this building back right. in 2015. Steel frame with steel stud work to fill in the gaps between the large frame. Into that, they put polyisocyanurate insulation. That's the stuff that was similar to the stuff that was on Grenfell. Okay. But this was a roofing grade and was, you, you have a classification of A to E, with E is the worst in regards to fire. Right. This stuff with class E. Over that, you have got a plywood sheet, which is class D. On top of that, you've got a breather felt, which is class E. Hey. On top of that, you've got uh, timbers, 50 by 100, which is class D. And on top of that, you had high-pressure lemonade, which, if you're lucky, it's class V, but most of it is class D. So, basically, everything in that wall, apart from the plasterboard inside and then the uh, steel frame, everything was combustible. That seems mad, doesn't it, given what we know now? <laughs> it's mad, uh, given what we knew then. Well, yes. But now unforgivable, perhaps, then, is my, the word I should use. Oh, it's been unforgivable for years. You know, even in the 2019 revision, we can clad up to 18 metres with timber 9 millimetres thick on the outside right. of a building. That is sheer lunacy, and it's coming from the advisers to government who should be making changes but don't seem to be able mm. to, and I don't know why. We don't know what they've been telling the ministers. We don't know what uh, Brian Martin or people from the building research establishment or the like told Eric Pickles after the Order 43 letter where the judge in the Lackanal fire, where we had uh, nine deaths, said that the building uh, approved gu uh, guidance to the building regulations was not fit for purpose. He did nothing. Why didn't Eric Pickles do anything? What was the advice he was given? What is the advice that is being given after uh, Grenfell by the likes of Dr. Debbie Smith of the Building Research Establishment, Martin Ship, uh, Brian Martin, and a number of other people? What advice are they giving? We don't know. Mm. And I think that this ought to be made a matter of public record so we can see what the advisers have been telling the, the ministers, because the advisers knew, or they ought reasonably to have known, of the problems with these modern methods of construction. And if they didn't know the problems with the modern methods of uh, construction, 
then they're not fit to be advisers because they can't advise. Well, quite, or at least they're not willing to advise in such a way that their advice should be taken up because at the moment it would appear that the building regulations have not been changed, which they were supposed to have been. It would appear that local authorities have not got the money to remove all of the cladding and replace it with something else. It would appear that the um, owners of the buildings and the constructors of the buildings would rather pass the amount of money on to the tenants of the buildings who clearly don't have the money. I mean, the whole thing is an absolute and utter mess, isn't it? It's, a, it's an utter mess. Warnings were given. I gave warnings about this in 2014. I warned about ACM. I warned about timber cladding. I warned about timber balconies. I warned about car parks underneath buildings. This building had a car park underneath it. You've got four-wheel and two-wheel petrol bombs underneath. Yeah. Right. And nothing is being done. Now, one of the high-ranking civil servants, off the record, when other people weren't listening, would always say, oh, yes, but the number of people dying in fires is falling. Show me the bodies. Yeah. And that was his uh, this person's attitude. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, you, 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 know, and I, I, I you and I both know, Arnold, that there are people in this world, in the corporate world in particular, who will be more than happy to show you a Venn diagram of how death doesn't happen very often, so the risk involved in not dealing with the amount of money that would stop those deaths is actually worth carrying out. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're back to the old Ford Pinto yeah, if you exactly. know about that, where it was cheaper not to make the modifications and then pay out for when the people died in car crashes. Yeah. Um, Which is yeah. a shocking thing to still be doing, isn't it? It is a shocking thing. It, it, it is shocking all the way through. And, you know, I, I, don't, I can't hit hold a minister responsible... I, unless I know that he was given advice that things needed to be change, changed, and he didn't make the changes. Now, a minister hasn't a clue about building yeah. or putting things together. You know, my, my local uh, minute, uh, um, MP, well, he was a taxi driver. Well, he could have had the, the job in the TCLG and now the MHCLG. What does he know about mm. building regulations? So it all goes back to who you surround yourself with in regards to your advisors. And to be honest, I think they should replace these advisors on whose watch these multiple fires have happened yeah. and replace them with the people who, free of charge, have been warning about it. Well, up in uh, the north-west of England, Matt Rack, General Secretary of the Fire Brigades Union, says this is not how any building should react to a fire in the 21st century, let alone a building in which people live. It's time for a complete overhaul of UK fire safety before it's too late. Now, can the Fire Brigades Union not affect some kind of change? The Fire Brigades Union can scream as much as they like, but until government makes changes and those advising them start making the right changes, you know, you can shout as much as you like. You know, you go back to the story of Noah's Ark. What does Noah's Ark teach you? Noah's Ark teaches you that you can tell people there's disaster coming. You have enough time to cut down all the trees, make an ark, then go into the whole world, then fill the boat with food and two of every animal. And it's only when the boat, uh, when the door closes, everyone says, bloody hell, he was right. Yeah, but he's the only one with an ark, though. What <laughs> he he was the to only do? one with the ark because he was the only one who was sensible. <laughs> oh, I see. But everybody else ignored him. People ignore the people who give these warnings until the disaster has struck to such an extent that you can't possibly do anything but listen to what has been said. And then it's normally too late. Yeah. We've got so... tens of thousands of buildings which are 
probably hundreds of thousands, which are dangerous, and we're building more. Well, the problem here as well, Arnold, is what I don't want to have to be doing is talking to you in a few months' time, saying, do you remember when we talked about that building in Bolton and still yeah. nothing happened? Because this is, this is one that got away. Nobody died in this one, and people were very fortunate, thankfully. But that might not always be the case. I mean, how many buildings do you think in this country, just in England alone, need to have their cladding removed? <laughs> countless, countless. Well, countless, like, count what, dozens, hundreds, what? Hundreds of thousands. You know, it could be 100,000 or more. You know, it, 100,000 it, buildings. Or more. You go into estates. We had a fire in Worcester Park in a timber frame property um, a month or so back. Yeah. Oh, everything's wrong with that building. That's a whole estate which has got problems. They, the builders, Barclay Homes, Barclay St. James, had had fires in another identical New Hampshire design down in, uh, in Kent. Mm. What have they done about it? Nothing. They had other, they've had three fires down in, sub, uh, in, in Kent on the site. The warnings have been given. The fire brigade have written their reports. They said what needs to be done. Nothing has been done. Mm. And you, you take that. There are hundreds of people, probably you know, thousands of properties, and you add them one on top of the other on top of the other. We have a tremendous problem because the people who should have been listening, who should have been advising, didn't do their job. That's a shocking state of affairs. Well, listen, Arnold, let's see what we can do about this because uh, I really don't want to see these buildings going up. Hundreds of thousands, possibly, at least yeah. 100,000 buildings. Arnold Tarling, Charles Surveyor, a member of the Association of Specialist Fire Protection. Uh, I'd like to take some calls on this as well because I know that many of you will know where some of these buildings are uh, and you can tell us where they are and you can tell us how it is possible that none of these buildings are being reclad or having the cladding taken off them. It's absolutely criminal, apart from anything else, isn't it? 0344 this is Talk Radio. More gun talk from a water pistol from the farmer of fury. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. I've been This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. You know what to do, don't you? Here's the number, 0344 499 1000. It's the only place uh, where you can get your voices heard because we are the voice of the people here at Talk Radio. We care what you think because you're going to create the next government of this country because you're going to vote it in. So it's quite important. Let's talk about cladding, though, because this is a massive story, something that we should have been talking about more, perhaps, over the course of the last couple of years since Grenfell. You know, yes, of course, we commemorated uh, the anniversary and people's attention is drawn to Grenfell and the terrible things things that happened that night uh, when so many people died. However, there was a massive fire up in Bolton in student accommodation over the course of this weekend. The whole building was destroyed. Luckily, nobody lost their lives. But there's a problem with the cladding on what could be as many as hundreds of thousands of buildings in this country. Let's talk to Andy, who's in Reading. Hello, Andy. Hello. Hi, hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm not bad, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not bad. I'm slightly disturbed by the... The, the sheer size of this uh, cock-up, if I may use that term. Absolutely. I, I don't normally ring... I mean, it's the first time I've ever rung a radio show. Well, welcome. I, Thank you for doing it. <laughs> I do listen to you quite a lot. And, yeah. But um, I live... Well, where I live, I live in a housing association place, and this building, we the car park was condemned recently because of fire inspection. Um, the building's opposite me, which is 21 storeys high, 
they believe that their cladding is aluminium and they have to change all that. And it's just the tip of an iceberg. I think they've identified about seven or eight properties in Reading recently. So I agree with your last caller. It's um, it's it's a massive, massive thing. I think. Yeah, but I mean, after Grenfell happened, how can it still be now more than two years on and none of this has changed? It's incredible. Absolutely. And you know the only reason now they found out that cladding was... How? Well, someone tried to remortgage their flat, right. and the survey, the surveyor said, "Oh, actually, um, when they'd done the, the survey, they said actually the cladding's you can't you can't remortgage it because the cladding's done." So um, they got, had to get the fire service in, and, right. um, and they had to redo occurred. it. So, yeah. so it's a, again a financial decision rather than a safety yes. decision, right? Uh, and I believe the original builders are um, having to put the cost, and they reckon it's going to take up to three years to yeah. do the whole building. Um, yeah, because, yeah, I mean, the last time I spoke about this, Andy, I got the clear and clear, clear impression that nobody was willing to take on the cost. Like, the, the builders don't yeah. want to do it, the local authority doesn't want to do it, the tenants, generally speaking, can't afford it, um, and the government um, won't give anyone the money. Oh, absolutely, because we, we've got the car park downstairs, and it's been cleared out for a month. They said it's, it would take a what, a week to do the work? That mm. was a month ago, and they've got the scaffolding up. And not, they're clearly not telling us exactly what's going no. on. I, ironically, we have a residence meeting this evening. So, okay. Well, I'd be interested to know <laughs> what, what, what comes out of it. Do keep in touch, Andy. Yeah. What about the fire kind of escape plans, the fire evacuation plans? Are you confident well, about those? Well, absolutely, because um, the only reason we can stay here, apparently, is because they've had to put 24-hour fire warden, so they they patrol the building and mm. um, they're downstairs and then they patrol the building. But, um, I believe that my particular um, housing association had a similar property in London this year, which they had to evacuate everyone from and they had to pay everyone. I think they paid them £7,000 and they had to relocate them and, there's no guarantee that they can move back into that property, apparently. So. Goodness me. Well, I'm starting to get an awful lot of interesting tweets from people. Really appreciate your call, Andy. Thank you very much indeed. Got this from, uh, from um, a listener who says, students were given three hours to leave Kingfisher Court in Manchester um, after it was evacuated over fire safety fears. This is West Yorkshire Fire Service has issued a prohibition notice over Kingfisher Court in Manchester Road in Chapel Hill. Fire chiefs have sent letters to residents telling them they must move out and as many as 80 residents might have to be affected and this is back in august of this year uh, this has come to us from david thanks david who says newly built student flats near me were evacuated because of concerns from the fire service everything had been signed off as safe by the council let's talk to simon who's in epsom hi simon hello there hey there yeah very well indeed what can you tell us yeah, yeah I, I, I used to work for berkeley homes since it's been uh, rather given a bit of a poor deal i think by the uh, caller a few a few minutes ago. Well, he's um, not a caller. He's a chartered. He's a chartered surveyor and member of the Association of Specialist Fire Protection. Indeed, 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 indeed. But we all have different views. And he was going on about wood and this being, you know, flammable. Everyone knows that wood's flammable and things like that. They're different grades, and it's how they're put together in a different way that makes the fire system appropriate. And all those, all these types of things are put together by local government for you to follow. So you cannot put up a building unless the local government authority has given you the permission to do so. And for yeah. them to do that, they have to go through their planning regs. They have to go through their fire regs. Right. So ultimately, it's them that make the decision on the fire regs and the planning. Now, whenever I've, when I've worked, I've worked for Langer Rural, and I've worked for Berkeley's, and I've worked for Galliford Tribe, worked for you know the big construction companies. Yeah. And whenever, the, whenever this falls at their doorstep, they get on it straight away they don't want a bad name they don't want to be building properties like that you know and 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 these these people come on and start slagging them off and these i think it's wrong i'm a, i've 
you know, I'm not, I don't only lost them. I was them a year, year ago. Um, I worked with them for five years. And, and as soon as you got any heat of something like this, I used to get a phone call from my director and I used to have to drop everything and go down and sort it out. Um, and when you say um, you've got a call about anything like this, meaning what exactly? No, a failing in construction. I used to deal with the defects in construction. Okay. So, um, so what, what would, for example, so what, what, would a, what would a construction boss, for example, would call you to say there's been a failure of construction? How would that occur? Uh, well, what would possibly happen is that, say, a gas engineer has gone in and looked at um, an installation of boiler and found out there's a bit of there's a bit of fireproofing missing between two buildings or something like that has okay. been missed, or there's only an inch, an inch gap or a small bit of has been missed around a bit of boarding and that counts as, a, as, as something that needs to be dealt with straight away. Because yeah. obviously, you know, we don't want to be found liable for things like that. Well, no, of course. So, but yeah. you know as well as yeah. I do, Simon, look, I'm, I totally take your point yeah. that the council regulations are inadequate because I think we all know that they are inadequate. But also, yeah. construction yeah. companies are commercial organisations and they will do things cheaply if they can only because that's makes oh, oh, that makes oh, that makes oh, business sense you know but all i'm saying yeah, I'm not, you know oh, I'm, yeah. I'm not i'm not i'm not pointing at any one particular company that happened to be a company that was mentioned by arnold tarling but i'm sure there are other companies but what we do know is that there are there are homes uh, and buildings in this country which are inflammable and which are at risk of going on fire which should have been dealt with after grenfell and haven't been there are, but I believe that's in the, in the power of the councils. I don't believe it's in the... Because what happens is you get stuck in this in this daydream sort of land where no-one wants to do anything because, obviously, it, it counts as their liability as soon as they touch it again. Yeah, but so you're, you're, it, we're, we're you talking get, about people's lives, Simon. It's all very well sitting there saying, you know, know, it's not fair to blame the construction company. If a, if a construction company has built a building which is in, at risk of going on fire, right, then it yeah. hasn't been built properly. Yeah. Well, it has, according to plans and regulations no, and according to the council. don't give me all that baloney. Do not give me that baloney, Simon. There are 70-odd people <laughs> dead in Grenfell, OK? They were not going to be convinced by either you or the construction company that everything was done right, because it wasn't. Otherwise, it'd still be alive. No, it, well, it, well, it obviously wasn't done done correctly. And, yeah, but, but it, it was, was done according to the rules. It was done according to the rules. Well, what are you doing working in a building site, a building company, putting up buildings that you know that can happen to? You don't know that that's going to happen because this only came to light afterwards, as I say. So it's, it's um, you're giving advice on that. If you go to experts and they give you advice and they tell you this is what's going to happen, that's what's going to happen, and you're given a green stamp to build it, you go ahead and build it because you, you are not an expert in every single field. You go right. to these people. So you don't say, are you um, sure that if we didn't spend more money on this, actually it might be safer? Yeah, I'm sure they would say that. Would and, they? and maybe that maybe that's so. You know, obviously it comes down to bottom line when you're dealing with big, big, um, big. No, it doesn't. It comes down to human. Actually, it comes down to human lives. Actually, Simon, it doesn't come down to bottom line, and that's what's wrong with the system. But listen, I appreciate your call, but I think you're defending the wrong people here. There is a problem. It's not just the fault of the construction companies, but the construction companies are also to blame. It's as simple as that. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show ten to one Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk radio app if you have an opinion on the stories we cover we'd love to hear from you call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at talk radio during the show to have your say the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio